Everybody, welcome to Hope Denver. So glad you decided to share your Easter with us today. My name is Ike Shepherdson. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, our church is all about hope and passion and joy. I hope that you get a little bit of that sense when you come in. We don't think this should be boring. We don't think this should be lame. We think that, that if you're following the God who exists, that this should give us joy and passion. And the thing is that we live in a city that's known for many things. You know, we as a church, we want to be known for joy and passion, for hope. But we live in a city that's known for all kinds of things, right? A city that's known for, uh, uh, for the mountains, uh, maybe the oil and gas industry, maybe some of you are, are part of that. Technology, I'm in the software business. Uh, maybe education, uh, uh, maybe we're known for marijuana. I don't know, good or bad. <laughs> but what if Denver wasn't known for all those things? What if it was known as a place of hope? What if our city was known for something that's a lot richer than just industries and recreations? What if people in Denver stopped living for the weekend and started to have fullness of life every day? What if people didn't just look forward to their vacations for rest or to their hobbies for joy? What if work itself was a joy? What if family was an attainable goal? What if love was more than just a slogan or a hope or a dream? What if Denver could be a place known for real hope? See, most people think that questions like this, they come down to, uh, to things like your, your attitude or positive thinking or something like that, uh, maybe even personal faith. These questions about could Denver be known for something? Could we have real hope in our lives? Most people think those, those questions turn on kind of your outlook on life. But what if I told you that the key to hope is not personal faith, as important as faith is? What if I told you that the key to hope isn't an emotional outlook on life? What if I told you that the key to real hope was actually an historical question? Does that seem a little strange? And of course you're thinking, some of you are like, of course, yeah, historians, these guys, they've got it all figured out. Uh, and let's be honest, a lot of them are guys, and those of you who are ladies who do history, uh, more kudos to you. Uh, historians are so cool and inspiring, of course, right? And this is a little self-serving because I, I, I majored in history in my undergraduate degree at Regis University. I got the history award, by the way, no big deal, I'm just saying, uh, you know. Uh, but when I was in college, I thought that questions about ultimate reality, the meaning of life, these things I'm talking about, personal hope, I thought that these were just kind of private questions that had to do with my own faith outlook or something like that. But the problem for me was that I realized that if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead in history, then the Christian faith of my youth was really just wishful thinking. It was, it was just something that maybe had personal meaning for me, but it had no impact on the violent, despairing world around me. In fact, I'm not alone in thinking that. Uh, Jesus himself claimed that everything that he was doing hinged upon him actually rising from the dead. He said, you'll know that I'm God by the fact that I'm going to die and rise from the dead again. And there were other Christians, early Christians, uh, uh, followers of Jesus, who said this, if Christ has not been raised, this is 1 Corinthians 15, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, 
We are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not, uh, if the fa- or, but he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people most, we we are of all people most to be pitied. See, the Christian picture of reality is that if Jesus rose from the dead, then we can be raised from the dead. That is that we can have a new life that begins right now that will never end. And even with physical death, our lives will never end. Can I get like an amen from somebody who's alive here today? Uh, I've had like 10 cups of coffee. No, not really. You feel free to chatter with me a little bit. But if if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we're, we're phonies. But if he did, if this is an historical reality, this is a game changer for everything. So I, I want to get back to the original question. Did Jesus actually rise from the dead? Is this something that really happened? And I want to suggest that if Jesus rose from the dead, then you and I need to believe it. And we need to start following Jesus. And the end result is that when Christ rises, hope itself rises as well. So today's message is hope rises. Let's read more of this story in the book of John, chapter 20. Uh, I'll start at verse 1 and following, and this is the word of the Lord. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. If Jesus rose from the dead, 
everything changes. In this story, Jesus rising from the dead changes everything. And if he did, then you and I need to believe it, and we need to start following Jesus. And this is an historical question. Did Jesus actually rise from the dead in history? And I think at this point, I want to suggest that some of us might be struggling with a little bit of what I would call an anti-supernatural bias. I think it's a good thing to be aware of. Uh, A lot of people in the modern West have this kind of bias. When we're looking at claims, truth claims, historical claims, we have sort of a bias against supernatural explanations. We typically would point to natural causes when something like this happens. For example, no one thinks that the grass outside is starting to turn green because we've been offering libation offerings to Quetzalcoatl, the Aztec serpent god, right? You with me on that? All right, good. There's like two of you who are like, maybe it's to Quetzalcoatl, I don't know. So maybe talking about a man who claimed to be God, Jesus, Jesus claimed to be God, maybe talking about somebody who rises from the dead is a little bit of a non-starter for you. Um, And I'd like to respectfully push back on this a little bit. See, if God exists, then miracles are possible. If God really exists, then that changes the game for the kind of universe that we are in. Because if God exists and he's a supernatural cause of a natural universe, then it's perfectly reasonable to think that a supernatural God could be the cause of something supernatural in the universe. Are you following me on that? And I think there are actually many good philosophical and scientific reasons to believe that God exists. Here's one. It's the moral argument. If you want to read more about this, you can read C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. If there are universal moral laws, then there is a universal moral lawgiver. The idea with this is that the only way for a law to be universal is for there to be a legal authority who transcends all peoples and all times, a universal moral lawgiver. If there's not a universal legal authority in the universe, then if you say that it's wrong to sell children into slavery, all I would need to say is, says who? Right? You have to have somebody who has that kind of objective quality, who can see all peoples at all times. And of course, there are universal moral laws. So if there are universal moral laws, then there is a universal moral lawgiver. And there are universal moral laws. It's wrong to enslave people. It's wrong to torture the innocent just because somebody likes to torture innocent people. Murder is wrong. Self-sacrifice and generosity are objective goods. Hate is evil and love is pure. Therefore, there is a universal moral lawgiver. I didn't appeal to any scripture or any special revelation of God revealed this to me. It's just good philosophy right there. And I bring this up simply to say that if this kind of God exists, then our anti-supernaturalistic bias should be suspended when we're talking about things like the resurrection. At least we should be aware of it. We should be aware that we have this kind of bias, especially if we have good historical evidence of something like the resurrection. So did Jesus actually rise from the dead? I want today to examine three lines of evidence, three reasons why I think we we, we can trust that this happened in history. The first line of evidence is that the tomb of Jesus was empty on Easter Sunday. The second one is that people who had every disposition to disbelieve in the resurrection of Jesus came to believe that it actually happened. And third, that there were eyewitness testimonies of the resurrection that have historical markers of authenticity. I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment. There's some historical markers of authenticity. 
So let's talk about the evidence really quick. The first one is that the tomb was empty. Let's look back at verse 1 and 2 in, in John chapter 20. If you're new to the Bible, uh, John is, is in, is in uh, about three-quarters of the way into the Bible. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John starts the New Testament of the Bible. Verse 1 says this. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have put him. So that's verse 1 and 2. See, a number of ancient non-Christian sources corroborate this part of the story here. Not in every detail, but a lot of ancient Christian sources corroborate that there was a, a man named Jesus who was believed to be a miracle worker, who was killed under the reign of Pontius Pilate, and his, his followers believed that he rose from the dead three days later. Uh, these would be sources like Josephus, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, Suetonius, and others. Feel free to look those ones up later on, and I can give you notes on that at some point if you're interested. But many other sources report that Jesus was buried by a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Jewish ruling council. It was called the Sanhedrin. Right, and this Jewish ruling council, they were the ones who condemned Jesus for blasphemy. Because he claimed to be God, they condemned him to death. Now, it would have been a strange detail to bring into the story to make this key person who showed compassion on the murdered Christ, to, to him also be somebody who was a member of the Jewish ruling council who condemned him to death. That's a very odd detail. His involvement could have been very easily denied if it wasn't the case that that happened. If you were making up his story, you probably would leave that bit out of it. And the thing is that all the gospel accounts report that the tomb was empty. And the alternative account at the time was that the body was stolen. But even that presupposes an empty tomb. If his body was stolen, the tomb was empty. A key thing proving that the tomb was empty is that in Jesus' day, if you were a famous teacher, a rabbi, uh, especially if you were a miracle worker or known to be one, typically when you died, your tomb would become a place of veneration. People would come there and pray, and, and there were probably about 50 such tombs just in Jerusalem at this time. And this never happened with the tomb of Jesus. It never became that kind of place of veneration where people knew his body was there and they came to pray at his bones. All I'm saying is that the tomb was empty. There's a lot more to establish, but just so you know, that, that's, that's a big deal. The tomb was empty. The second line of evidence is that believers, people who came to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, they had all these religious and cultural dispositions against believing that. Um, see, Jewish people, they would not have believed that God's redemption of humanity would look anything like this. They expected that when God was going to redeem humanity, that there was going to be a ruler who would come, and he would kick out the Romans, who were in control of the province of Judea, and he would set up this kind of global theocracy, where the Gentiles would come into Jerusalem, those are non-Jewish people, they would come into Jerusalem and worship the Jewish God at the temple. But it was all going to be by force that this Messiah would do this kind of thing. And these Jewish people, they, they believed that if people were going to rise from the dead... It wouldn't have been just one person. It would have been like everybody. <laughs> he would have seen Abraham, Isaac, all their heroes of the faith, the people that they looked to in their heritage. These people would have risen from the dead as well. They never believed 
that the redemption of humanity would have involved a carpenter on a Roman cross and just that person's resurrection from the dead. They would have been more likely to believe that Jesus was a liar or that he was crazy. They had that kind of disposition. In fact, there were people like Saul of Tarsus, whose Greek name was Paul, uh, and, and Jesus' brother named James, that these people actually thought that Jesus was crazy. They thought he was a false teacher. But these people, Paul and James, they came around, as we'll see, and I'll show you that in just a minute. Let's look at verse 3 in the text. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. See, John immediately believes when he sees the empty tomb, but Peter seems a little bit unsure. Did you know that God is okay with uncertainty? Did you know that? That doesn't threaten his godhood <laughs> for you to be like, I'm not so sure about this stuff. At Hope Denver, we're a church that we, we love when people ask questions. If you have honest questions, we think there are honest answers to those questions, and that doesn't threaten who God is. In fact, I think God really welcomes it. You can look to places like in the book of Isaiah where God says, come, let us reason together. God likes this kind of stuff. But I think, I think you know, Peter, he comes around after hearing Mary's testimony and after he saw the risen Jesus. But I think that this character trait that you see in Peter is a good one to emulate. Peter was willing to change his mind upon receiving good evidence. I think that's a good character trait to have. See, just a couple of days before, he was claiming that he didn't even know who Jesus was, even though they had been best friends for years. He was willing to, to admit that he made a mistake, and he was willing to follow the truth wherever it went even if it was uncomfortable, even if it challenged his lifestyle, even if it was the kind of thing that made him lose something that was important to him, he followed the truth wherever it led. See, true open-mindedness means that you're willing to examine yourself and find that maybe there are places that are a little off, places where things need to change, places in your life where maybe you need to follow the truth a little bit more wholeheartedly. See, John and Peter, they came to believe it, even though they didn't understand that the Jewish scriptures were talking about this event. They didn't understand that their religious history had some prophecy about this kind of thing. In fact, they were so convinced that the resurrection happened that they were willing to die for it. This is a big deal. If you're making up a hoax, you're probably not going to die for it. And all of Jesus' male disciples were killed for proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead, except for John, who died in prison. People don't die for hoaxes. A large number of Jewish people who had strong cultural customs of observing the Sabbath also, they observed the Sabbath on, on, on Saturdays. A large number of Jewish people at this time 
they started changing their day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. They had millennia of cultural practice of the, the day of worshiping God is always Saturday. And then on a dime, you see thousands of people in the Judea area starting to worship God on Sundays. That's because they believed that something important had happened on that day. So people who had a strong disposition against believing the resurrection came to believe it. The third line of evidence is that there are eyewitness testimonies with marks of historical authenticity. Look at verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. I'd like to pause just for a moment from this more historical argument that I'm making, and I want to recognize that God meets us in the middle of our grief and our loss. I think that's an important message to remember on a day like Easter Sunday. In the middle of times where things feel dead, God meets us there. See, all along, I've been kind of assuming that people in this city are looking for hope. But when you live in a city with great parks and good beer, uh, when, you look in a, when you live in a state with awesome mountains and good-looking people, I'm talking about you, of course, thank you very much, um, it's easy to hide away the silent, anxious thoughts. Do you know what I mean? It's easy to hide it behind your recreation or your lifestyle or your Instagram followers or how your job's going right now in a nice growing economy. In the middle of Mary's grief, God sees her. In those quiet moments where she is despairing, God meets her in those places. See, Easter is all about when Jesus comes out of the grave, it's hope itself that has risen from the dead. Hope is alive, and fear and anxiety, though they're real today, those can be crucified at the cross, and you can rise again with Jesus. This is a good message, and I think that's a message for somebody today. Jesus rising from the dead is the message that you need today. God sees you, and he wants to bring you comfort. God knows your anxieties. God knows your fears your disappointments, and your sadness. And he's bringing an end to all of it. Let's look at verse 14. At this, she, Mary, turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead and tell my brothers, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them he had said these things to her. What I'm talking about right now is that there are eyewitness testimonies of the resurrection that have historical markers of authenticity. The disciples who wrote these things down, the people who followed Jesus who wrote down the Gospels, um, that 
it's, it's almost universal consensus among both skeptics and religious scholars in the field that all of the gospel books were written before the year 90 of the Common Era, or AD, 90 AD, which means that people who have, would have read about these things could have consulted living eyewitnesses who could have corroborated or falsified the gospel records themselves. It also means that the gospels were written too close to the events that they purport to describe for legends to have developed. Legends take a number of generations to develop. Uh, accounts of people claiming to see the risen Jesus have these historical markers of authenticity. There was one person, Saul of Tarsus, this man who, who was also known by his Greek name, Paul. See, he was complicit in the killing of Jesus' followers. He was a persecutor of early Christians, and he claimed to have seen the risen Jesus. He, he has an incredible change in his life to where he wrote most of the New Testament books, this man, Paul. What could explain that kind of transformation? Somebody who is willing to kill followers of Jesus, who becomes one and actually was murdered at the hands of the Romans because he believed that he had seen the, the risen Jesus. He was a successful Jewish scholar who was convinced against his beliefs. What could explain his transformation? Well, that he actually saw the risen Jesus. There's Jesus' brother, James. I already mentioned him once. He, had be he became the leader of the Jerusalem church. He was the one who actually led the followers of Jesus after Jesus died and rose from the dead. During Jesus' lifetime, James did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He thought his brother was nuts. He tried to silence him. Now, if you're making up a story to try to build up your authority, to try to gain money or influence or something like that, to try to influence other people, why would, why would you make it up so that you were a villain in the first part of the story? It would make much more sense for you to have been the person who trust. I trusted him all along, even when they led him to the cross. See, when you're making up stories, you leave out these kinds of details. But if that's how it was, you leave the embarrassing things in place. The crown eyewitness of this account that we've been reading today is a woman named Mary Magdalene. Mary and many other women claim to have seen the risen Jesus. And Mary in this story is the first eyewitness to the risen Jesus. She's the first person who saw him. Women in the ancient world were not allowed to give testimony in a court case by themselves. Their testimony was often disregarded or at least minimized in legal settings. If you're making up a story, you don't put the chief lie into the mouth of a woman in the ancient world. But I think that this shows a little bit of God's heart towards women. This woman, Mary Magdalene, was the first preacher. Thank you very much. She was the first preacher. If you want to hear another woman preaching, you can come back next week. My wife's preaching. She was the first preacher of the gospel. Again, if you're making up a hoax, why would you do this? See, women have a vital task to perform in God's kingdom. God's plans for the world include putting women in the right place that they ought to have. But God also confounds the world's politics of gender. Women aren't a voting issue in God's kingdom. Women are the crown eyewitnesses and the preachers of God's eternal truth and of God's work in history. And God, God empowers them and he uses them to do good in the world. 
This is what Jesus does in a world that doesn't trust women or that doesn't listen to them. He puts them in the place of sharing the main message of his redemption. So what's the point of all this? I think we have good historical evidence, as far as historical evidence goes, to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. This isn't just my private faith opinion. I think this is true. And the writer of this book, actually, he reveals his agenda at the end of the book. Uh, John, who wrote this book, says, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So I have a challenge for you. Do you believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead? Do you believe that? See, I've pre presented what I think is good evidence that Jesus actually rose from the dead. But if this is true, this should do so much more than just inspire you. It should, it should do so much more than just lift your spirits. See, faith is not a blind leap. But following good evidence does require a step. It requires a step. If this is true, it should make you reevaluate who you are in relation to God. See, the Bible says that Jesus' death and resurrection is the only way that we can be forgiven of our sins and have right relationship to God. It says that his resurrection itself is the only proof that we can ever have that new life is possible. A big problem, though, for many of us is that we don't want to have to answer to anyone for who we are or what we do. We want to be our own masters. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. This week, when Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris burst into flames, most of us had a strong sense of the sacred, right? That something beautiful and sacred was, was, was being lost. Something of lasting value was being destroyed. My wife said to me when, when this happened, she said that uh, many of us want a sense of the sacred, but we don't want to submit to the Lord. That is that we want holy things, but we don't want the Holy One. Um, there's a Christian writer named uh, Ann Voskamp, and she said that we may want the scent of Christ in our streets without any surrender to Christ in our souls. See, to have hope, that rises with the resurrection of Christ, you have to submit to the lordship of Christ. He can't just be the Lord. He has to be your Lord. It requires a step. And the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Let's stand up together here. Can I have the keys up? We're going to come to a close here in just a moment. Some of you, you may have already believed this for a long time. It's time to take your beliefs out into the world. It's time to take those things that are kind of private, and maybe they've been very meaningful to you, it's time to take them out into the world. See, Jesus is the hero of this story, but we have a secondary hero. It's Mary, who heard Jesus and obeyed Jesus. Let's talk about who he is. Let's follow his command to go and tell about what he's done. We don't tell just about our private experiences or our personal faith, but we share evidence in the God who is alive, amen? The God who is really there. See, if Jesus rose, then his mission of love and peace and forgiveness, his message of life that never ends, and his way of hope are realities that can change the world. 
If God is real, everything changes. But you have to take a step. Would you mind just closing your eyes right now? And I just want to offer you an opportunity to do that. And no one else will be looking around, but if you sense that it's time for you to take a step, or you, you want to say, hey, you know what? I, I've heard about these things before, and maybe I've had some kind of private sense of this, but I really want to make Jesus my Lord. I want to follow him. I want to believe him and do what he says. If, if that's you, would you mind just slipping up your hand? And I'm just going to be the only one looking around, but I just want to acknowledge that you want to do that. Would you be willing to just raise your hand up in the air and you can put it right back down? If you want to follow Jesus, just lift that hand up. And I won't do anything else to embarrass you, but I just want, I want you to be known that, I want you to know that you were seen. If you want to follow Jesus, would you just do that right now? Some of you, you know that God's calling you to take a step as well. Faith isn't a leap into the dark. It's a step into the light, and it's time for you to step out. God's calling you into something deeper. And maybe you don't know what that is, but you sense him kind of tugging on your heart right now. If you sense that God is tugging on your heart, that, yeah, it's time for me to step out. It's time for me to obey Jesus. Would you also just be willing to raise your hand and just say, yeah, I think God's tugging on my heart. I don't know what it is, but I want to hear from him. If that's you, just lift up your hand right now. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I see you guys. That's awesome. Yes, amen, brother. That's awesome. Yeah, see, God's calling us to something that's deeper. And I just want to pray for you right now. Uh, and, and let's just kind of keep our heads bowed in this posture. Lord, right now, as people are, are acknowledging you as their Lord, as they say, they're saying they want to follow you as their master, they want to step out and believe and obey, Lord, I pray that you would meet them in this moment and that they would know that God has met them. Give them wisdom in what to do next. Give them conviction to go and tell the world about the God who has risen from the dead. In Jesus' name. And you can just look at me really quickly. I just want you to know that if you still have questions, maybe some of this stuff was interesting to you, or maybe you felt maybe God was doing something in your life, but you have questions. Uh, we are a church that loves questions. <laughs> Ask them. We invite you to return next week. I want to invite you. Come back next week. We're going to be talking about these kinds of important things all the time here at Hope Denver. We're a community that's all about hope. We're not about judgment. We're about love and peace and joy. And if you can sense that something is missing, something's off in your life, and you know that it can't be filled by more stuff, it can't be filled by, by being positive, or by recreation. I want to invite you to come back. See, life in a community with Jesus and people who love Jesus, that's where hope happens. Is when there's people who love Jesus and Jesus meets with them. That's where people have hope and where lives are changed. So I'll, I'll pray this benediction on you right now. So God in heaven and God among us now, may your people be filled with hope. May the truth of the resurrection of Jesus fill us with hope for this life and for a life that never ends. I pray that the love of Jesus would fill the hearts of each one gathered here. May they believe you and obey you, and all for the glory of the crucified and risen Son, who lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.